1: The financial system has been painstakingly slow to digitise. It's been overtaken by ride-hailing and retail, by media, and even by education. But things are now moving fast. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Bogue, and in today's episode, we'll be investigating what the future of digital money and payments might look like all this I'm joined by Alice Fulwood, a Wall Street and American finance correspondent who's currently paying a visit to London and I can hardly believe it Alice but for the first time in far too long we're actually recording in person together in a studio how does it feel
2: it feels great to be back in the studio again very excited by how high-tech this setup is in fact I just exclaimed with delight at the on-air button which looks very legit compared to just taking a uh, voice memo on my iPhone so yeah delighted to be here
1: So Alice, why are we talking about digital finance now? What feels different about this moment?
2: It does feel as though we're living through this period of sort of massive fundamental changes in what is possible in the financial system and how it works. A lot of the people that I speak to regularly, like bankers, central bankers, fintech entrepreneurs, etc., they all are sort of amazed by how much seems to be in flux at the moment For example, uh, just last Friday on September 10th, Benoit Curé, who is the head of innovation at the Bank of International Settlements, which is sort of like a club of big central banks, described just how rapid this period of change seems to be.
3: Why do we need to know where we are going? That's because today the financial system is, uh, is shifting under our feet. Big techs are expanding their footprint in retail payments. Stablecoins are knocking on the door seeking regulatory approval. Decentralized finance or DeFi uh, platforms are challenging traditional financial intermediation uh, and they all come with different uh, regulatory questions uh, which need fast and consistent uh, answers.
2: So as you can see, you know, even typically staid central bankers are acknowledging sort of just how quickly things seem to be changing right now.
1: So it's a really exciting time. And in your view, what do all these changes add up to? Are you starting to see the outlines of different visions of what the future of finance might look like?
2: Yes, there are several different shapes emerging out of the fog. It's helpful to compare them with what we currently use. So in the West, for the most part, we mostly do use digital payments. We use credit and debit cards online to pay for things or we, you know, tap cards or we use our digital phone wallet apps to pay for stuff. But all of that ultimately runs through the banking system. So those debit cards are an extension of your bank account. That's how you carry out transactions. And that system is ultimately plumbed by national central banks. And they have a lot of control and oversight over that current system. To my mind, there are sort of three core models that are being proposed that could potentially, you know, usurp or replace that. Two of these are centralized systems. So the first would see central banks, i.e. sort of public government actors, take a bigger role in digital payments. So a lot of central banks around the world have been discussing potentially issuing these things called central bank digital currencies. Those might end up being the sort of digital money, the tokens that we use to pay for things in the future rather than using deposits that are currently in banks. The second one is also a centralised network, but it might be run privately. So, for instance, uh, Facebook has sort of long telegraphed its desire to expand into the payments space. It's working with a consortium of other businesses to issue a token that we might use to pay for things, and it plans to launch a wallet system. Uh, I did get to interview David Marcus, who is the boss of Novi, the wallet system that Facebook plans to launch, a few days ago, and we will hear from him in a minute about how that might work. The third option would work differently. It would be a decentralised system. So it wouldn't have any one government or company necessarily at the heart of it, but it would be verified and run by a distributed and decentralised network of individuals. No one overall in control, but it would be secured through the blockchain.
1: So we'll come back to blockchains and decentralised finance later on. But let's start with central bank digital currencies. Now, we've talked quite a lot about these before on Money Talks. For a crash course on how they work, I recommend going back to our episode from the 12th of May called Does the World Still Need Banks? But Alice, where are CBDCs up to now? How much progress has been made on thinking of the costs and benefits and towards introducing them?
2: So when we last discussed these in May, China was in a very advanced pilot phase, but it's sort of now progressed further with that and it's rolled its CBDC out further. There have also been a handful of island nations who've copied the Bahamas, which was the first country to issue a CBDC. There was sort of an intensity to the debate around CBDCs in May, but it's only ramped up since there's been sort of more commentary from the Fed, the ECB, every major central bank about what they are doing with CBDC pilot programmes and whether or not they think that will be something that ultimately they want to issue. They do have a lot of potential plus sides compared with our current system. Again, Benoît Coré of the Bank for International Settlements puts it very well.
3: CBDC will be part of the answer a well-designed CBDC will be a safe and neutral means of payment and settlement asset, serving as a, as a common interoperable platform around which the new payment ecosystem can organize. Uh, it will enable an open finance architecture that is integrated while welcoming competition and innovation. And it will preserve democratic control of the currency. Which brings me to my second message. Uh, the time has passed for central banks to get going. Uh, we should roll up our sleeves, accelerate our work on the nitty-gritty of CBDC design. CBDCs will take years to be rolled out, while stable coins and crypto assets are already here. This makes it even more urgent to start.
2: And they definitely do have advantages over how we currently do things. For instance, bank accounts are not universal. They're not always cheap or quick to use. The problem is that they could also potentially give governments extensive new powers over their citizens. So for instance, if everyone had an account with the central bank, you might get privacy concerns. You might also worry that money might drain from bank accounts. And because banks are currently responsible for a huge amount of lending in the economy, you might worry that that would destabilise the sort of current traditional financial system. And while perhaps the traditional financial system won't be as big and important as it is now, you definitely don't want to do that too quickly or radically because it could be quite disruptive.
1: Now, as Mr. Currie hinted there, this push for CBDCs at least partly reflects hugely impressive progress that's being made by big tech firms in creating private centralised digital financial systems. This is the second kind of vision for the future of money that you mentioned. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, exactly. So
2: alternative number two is that private companies come to be the sort of most important intermediators of financial transactions. So this has already happened to a very large extent in China. The sort of big tech firms, um, Alibaba and WeChat both expanded into doing payments. And now their payment solutions are by far the most dominant ways that people in China use to pay for things. That really worried the Chinese Central Bank. That is one of the reasons why they went ahead and issued their CBDC. Things haven't progressed quite as quickly in the West, but tech firms here have definitely caught on. For instance, Facebook announced a couple of years ago that it wanted to work on what's called a stablecoin project and a digital wallet system of its own. And I got to talk to David Marcus, who is the head of F2, Facebook's financial arm, which includes Novi, its digital wallet system, a couple of days ago to discuss all of that.
0: Novi is kind of a next-generation digital wallet. It will enable people to pay one another uh, either for domestic transactions or, more importantly, for cross-border or international transactions to use uh, new types of uh, assets or currencies like stablecoins that will enable them to actually leverage new infrastructure that will be more open, interoperable, and cheaper to use. In this case, the intention is for us to build on top of the DM network and using the the dm stablecoin
2: so some of our listeners might have heard of other types of stablecoins like tether and circle are sort of two of the big ones and for listeners a stablecoin is a token that is pegged one for one with a major global currency like the dollar or the euro David, could you just explain a little bit about how DM stablecoin will differ from existing ones?
0: Sure thing. So, uh, DM is uh, the new name for Libra, which is this project that we started. And DM is actually an independent association now. So, Novi is one of uh, 26 members of the DM association alongside uh, companies you'll recognize like Shopify, Uber, Lyft, uh, Spotify and a number of social impact partners that uh, will help on the inclusion front. And uh, and this association has basically built two things. One is a new network for payments, a new infrastructure for payments, which is the DM network. And on top of that, they're intending to launch uh, a first stablecoin, which is the DM dollar, uh, which is basically a stablecoin backed by dollars. And the main difference between DM and other stablecoins is actually that the reserve is backed one for one with very high quality assets, meaning cash and very short term treasuries. And it's got a a buffer on top of that. So in terms of consumer protections and and the certainty that consumers can get their money out at every moment at par, so always a dollar for a dollar, is incredibly high. The DM dollar is meant to run on the DM blockchain, which is the very, very first purpose built payments blockchain.
1: Could you just walk
2: me through step by step how, once this is up and running, a regular person will get money into this system and what they'll be able to do with it?
0: Currently, for most people who want to send money abroad, they have to go to a physical location with cash. They take a photo of that receipt, typically send it over WhatsApp or Messenger to the recipient on the other side of the world. And then three days later, and on average 6.5% less later, the person on the other side has to uh, wait in line for hours. And the experience is costly and horrible for people who actually can afford it the least. So now let's compare that and contrast it with the experience that people will have on Novi. So anyone with a smartphone, $25 smartphone at this point, will have access to the Novi wallet and you'll be able to load it either via cash or add your debit card or bank account. You'll be able to actually send money using these new rails that are going to be available and uh, you'll do that for free. So our business model is going to be on the merchant side for merchant services. That's where we'll make our money. On the consumer side, we want to offer uh, person-to-person payments, whether domestically or internationally for free to use that balance immediately.
2: I mean, there have already been sort of various fintechs that have tried to tackle this problem of cross-border payments. People like Wise, who have made it sort of easier and cheaper to move money across border with lower fees. Is the problem as really as big as you're describing?
0: It has definitely become easier. And I think that if you look at the the way that you can send money cross-border in most developed markets, it has really changed a big deal. And you know, I I used to run PayPal back in the day, and we help people move money cross-border as well. The cost of it, though, is real. And and the the big thing, I think, is the lack of interoperability of all of these wallets. So when I was at PayPal, I led this acquisition of Braintree and Venmo. And that was eight or nine years ago. And today, you still can't send money between Venmo and PayPal, despite the fact that they're part of the same company. We decided to really go the hard route and try to build something that included new infrastructure to move money, or if you want a a protocol for money on the internet. And that will enable everyone to basically have an opportunity to participate in a modern payment system versus just being closed in a a small island that's controlled by one company.
2: So you've said publicly that regulators should give Facebook a fair shot to launch a payment solution. What, What do you mean by a fair shot? And do you feel you're not being given that now?
0: So I feel that we've done a lot to reduce costs and broaden access to critical services in the past. So you know, my my comparison is really communications. We went from paying a dollar a minute for an international call and 25 to 15 cents a text message to having unlimited free communications with over-the-top apps on the internet. And we've had a big part in that. And I feel that What we're trying to do with money is similar. There's 1.7 billion people who are unbanked around the world, another billion that's underserved by financial services. And we feel that we have a partial solution, at least, to this problem.
2: I guess this gets one of the big potential concerns about this there, which is that Facebook is already a hugely powerful organisation. Do you understand the reluctance from sort of regulators and potentially as well as the sort of general public to see the firm expand that clout over money as well?
0: Well, I think that competition is always good for consumers, and we believe that we can help solve some of these problems because of our reach, not despite our reach. But I also understand that given our reach and and scale, that uh, we're under a lot more scrutiny than other players might be, and that's fair. And I think all of the questions that stemmed from the original Libra project for the most part, were fair concerns that needed to be addressed. I think DM has done a really good job addressing all of these. And on the Novi side, we feel confident that we can operate a wallet at the highest degrees of compliance and financial services standards. So I think that the questioning is fair. And I think that what would also be fair is for us to demonstrate that we can be a trusted player in the space. We bring good solutions to real problems and we do it really well.
2: One of the things that's interesting is that the network effects that MasterCard and Visa have managed to amass that have made them sort of very, very sticky in this space seem applicable to what WeChat and Alipay have managed to achieve. So I think this is sort of one of the key questions at the sort of heart of of any entrant into the payment space, which is, will you all benefit from that network effect as well?
0: Well, I think that if our goal was to be monopolistic, then, you know, we probably wouldn't have played it the way we have. You raise a a, a number of different issues around trust and brand and all kinds of different things. Anyone that will actually sign up with a third-party wallet on the DM network will have the same reach as anyone signing up for Novi. We've built something and we've kind of donated it and enabled it to be its own thing without us controlling it because we felt that this is a -a once-in-a-generation chance to upgrade our payment infrastructure so that it's more inclusive and that it's actually configured with the right incentives to serve as many people as can be served rather than only the the affluent part of the, the population.
1: What is
2: the time frame, do you think, for getting Novi sort of up and running? And if you could cast forward for a couple of years or more, what would you hope to have achieved with Novi if we have this conversation again?
0: So Novi is ready to go and we're looking to launch by the end of 2021. Fast forward a number of years, my hope is that there's a whole ecosystem of wallets and service providers that gets built on top of this infrastructure, and that, you know, Novi is competing for its fair share of business on top of this new infrastructure. I think, you know, if you stretch it further out, I'm pretty excited about all of the opportunities around purpose-built blockchain for payments and smart contracts. The problem that we're trying to solve right now is really. Can you store money digitally and move it around for free and easily? And how can you get more people to have access to capital? And so we're looking forward to a, a ton more innovation in the money space in the years to come and, uh, and for us to play a, a very positive role in it.
1: Alice, what do you make of Novi and how it's going to fit into the financial landscape? Do you think it's going to solve the problems that it sets out to solve? The current system
2: that we use does have a lot of frictions in it. In particular, the sort of most egregious example of this is the just enormous interchange fees that Visa and MasterCard take. And what we hear from David Marcus is that the interchange fees that would be associated with DM and the Novi system would be much lower than that. So as long as that's correct, then it definitely will solve that problem. And it is easy to imagine that it would be a much easier cross-border payment system than what we currently have. At the same time, how we got to the system that we currently have is that one or two major players amassed a lot of power by creating enormous networks of users and then once they had those networks, it's then very hard for for sort of an upstart to compete with them. Facebook can compete with them because they already have that network. But I don't know that it totally solves that problem. But one of the things David Marcus did describe is how they deliberately tried to get out ahead of that problem. They've built a consortium of businesses. So it's not just at their discretion and at their control. And at the same time, that stablecoin DM will interoperate with lots of different wallets. It won't just work with Novi. And Facebook have said that they will work with a CBDC if the Fed chooses to issue one or if other central banks choose to issue one. And certainly, there's already hugely concentrated power in the payments industry. So competition for those incumbents is definitely welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Alice. Now, we'll be back in a moment to talk about the third fascinating and utterly bewildering trend that could shape the future of the financial system, DeFi or decentralised finance. But first, a reminder that Money Talks now has a newsletter. It's free and packed full of exclusive personal insights from our brilliant team of journalists, including Alice. Each week, they break down one big trend or event in the worlds of business, finance and economics and explain why it matters. It comes out every Thursday, and you can sign up at economist.com slash talks. The link is in the notes for this episode.
2: So I've built this little cartoon avatar that is a a version of myself, mine is sort of small and blonde, and drop into this digital world. You walk around using your keyboard arrows or the WASD keys, which are what I always use to play video games in my youth. There are lots of other sort of little cartoon people walking around as well. And in the center of this sort of arena is a swimming pool shaped like a funnel with its sort of virtual water sliding out of sight. This is the entry point to a metaverse called Decentraland and this is a virtual reality world and to get into the heart of it you climb up and over this diving board and into the belly of this swimming pool at which point you fall down a tunnel and arrive in Decentraland.
1: Okay, Alice, what is happening? Where are you? And what is Decentraland?
2: (laughs) Those are all very good questions. Decentraland is a decentralized virtual reality platform powered by the Ethereum blockchain. And those are all words that I didn't really understand three months ago. It's essentially this sort of digital universe where there are shops and museums and other little cartoon people and you can wander around and you can, you know, buy digital collectibles. You can look at NFT digital art on the walls and even, you know, some of the startups that I've been interviewing to learn about decentralization and decentralized finance have headquarters and offices there. So one of the firms that I interviewed, Consensus, they have a headquarter in Decentraland as well. This whole world is run using software that has been built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. It's this sort of universe owned and operated by its users where you can do on-blockchain activity.
1: Well, that helps a little bit. <laughs> what you're describing is certainly something that's really novel What does decentralised mean? Is it just finance that's being decentralised in this world? Tell us a little bit more about the vision of the developers in in the DeFi space.
2: By novel, I'm pretty certain that you just meant mad. But sure, we'll we'll go with novel. Um, So what most people probably associate with blockchains and crypto so far is likely Bitcoin and potentially other crypto tokens like Ether, and the technology that underlies all of those tokens, including Bitcoin, is the blockchain. And the blockchain is basically an immutable record of whatever information it was designed to store. So Bitcoin was designed to score transactions in Bitcoin tokens and, you know, who owned what Bitcoins. And that was the sort of first iteration of a blockchain system. Things have progressed a lot in the sort of 12 years since Bitcoin was invented. Now, blockchains store all kinds of information, including Computer code, which means that you can write all kinds of very innovative and futuristic software applications on top of blockchains now, even including metaverses. The part of this which has progressed sort of most quickly from that sort of initial payment application to these sort of bigger and better things is decentralized finance. And I talked to uh, Lex Sokolin, who is a developer at Consensus, one of the sort of firms building a lot of DeFi applications, about this. And he painted this sort of very futuristic vision of the world.
0: Why do you need anything else but crypto-native activity? For me, it's not clear. And certainly, you know, like Consensus has things it does in working with J.P. Morgan and with Mastercard and UBS and. We have like six different CBDC pilots going on, but I think it's very possible that the economic activity that's going to be unlocked in kind of the next leg of crypto innovation will be of the metaverse kind. It's, it's very much not obvious to me that one thing in the real world is more important than another thing in the digital world.
1: How much activity now is taking place? within decentralised finance and what sorts of functions can now be done on a blockchain? So there were basically
2: no DeFi applications, even as recently as three or four years ago. What you've seen over the past couple of years is more than $100 billion worth of collateral get used to back various decentralised finance applications. And the growth in DeFi in general seems to be increasing the demand for use of the sort of underlying blockchain technology. Most of these DeFi applications have been built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. It settled $2.5 trillion worth of transactions in the second quarter of 2021, which is approximately the same amount as Visa settled. It's not an apples to apples comparison with Visa, but still a very impressive number for sort of a still nascent technology. Its capabilities are also growing as well. So you can deposit tokens and earn interest on them now. You can also borrow tokens. Um, There are sort of lending applications that have been developed. There are also exchanges that have been developed that sort of run entirely on the blockchain as well that allow you to swap tokens for one another. And the sort of most sophisticated is that there's been the creation of an entire on blockchain stablecoin. That's really sort of very impressive financial innovation. So it's growing in size and it's growing in scope.
1: So why are people pursuing this? What are the main benefits of decentralisation?
2: You might worry that the government has sort of new and expanded powers if it's involved very closely in the payment system that you use. And you potentially might Not like that. If instead a private company has total control over the systems that we use to pay for things, they can raise fees, they can try and silo users. Decentralized systems offer a sort of an alternative where you can feel confident that however the system worked when you started using it is how it will work in the future. And if people want to change that there needs to be a sort of consensus of a lot of users in the network to do so you can't just have the sort of single person or company in charge and finally sort of one benefit that a lot of people who develop DeFi applications talk about is the potential for it to be more efficient and easier to use
1: so so far it sounds quite exciting and quite promising but what are the risks of a completely decentralized system If there's no one in control,
2: if there's no sort of lender of last resort function, a sort of very important function of the traditional financial system, then it seems pretty easy to imagine that any sort of crisis that goes on in this decentralized system could easily spiral out of control. It's also very, very difficult to write computer code that doesn't have any bugs in it. And indeed, several of the sort of earliest iterations of DeFi applications fell foul of people exploiting bugs in their code hundreds of millions of dollars would sort of mysteriously disappear. And that's not really a risk that we accept in the traditional financial system. One of the current problems that seems quite significant is that there isn't a huge amount that you can do with crypto tokens necessarily at the moment. And so mostly people are just using them for speculation. And so as clever and sophisticated as some of the innovation and engineering might be, it's not sort of serving a a particularly great purpose. And lastly, is a criticism that is very common of all blockchain technologies and Bitcoin in particular, which is that they consume sort of wantonly wasteful amounts of electricity. And it's very difficult to see how they could be sort of a great solution to any problem in a world in which sort of climate change is a major issue that people are trying to tackle.
1: So one way that DeFi could take off then is if these three problems that you've described are solved. So if the problem of energy use is somehow resolved, if there's better regulation so that people aren't defrauded. And if speculation comes to an end, and in fact, these really innovative functions are being put towards some real activity. But those are huge hurdles. Is there another scenario in which DeFi could gain mass adoption?
2: Yes, so if all of those problems aren't magically solved, there is another way that DeFi could continue to grow and become sort of a genuinely important financial system. And that is that the sort of on-blockchain digital economy grows. So this is either things like metaverses, the creation of sort of digital art, like NFTs has been sort of one of the uses that has encouraged more and more people to start using DeFi. And so if you sort of cast way out into the future, and you imagine that we do live some significant part of our lives in a digital universe that has been built on a blockchain, then, of course, all of the financial systems that have been built in a decentralized way that are compatible with other things built on the blockchain will be a very important tool that we use to live our lives.
1: Alice Forward, thank you so much for joining us. I feel sure that we're going to have to visit Decentraland again. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I'll I'll,
1: I'll meet you there. Mm Now, as we've heard, all of these different models, public CBDCs, private payments networks and decentralised finance, all exist to some degree already. And you can expect them to develop and grow much further in the future. The question now is if and how they can coexist, work together and who will benefit. And we'll be exploring all that in more detail in next week's episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to listen. You can also read about Alice's adventures in DeFi land from tomorrow, September 16th at Economist.com. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can go to economist.com slash podcast offer. Our thanks to David Marcus, Benoit Curé, Lex Sokolin, and Alice Forward. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen, or you can write to us at podcast at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, with additional production support from Abisoye Oshundero. Nico Raufaust is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmurelli. I'm Rachna Shanbhog and in London, this is The Economist.